0: Tonight we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 11. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. If you don't, we've got the text printed in the bulletins in front of you. Let us read those 11 verses. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, we preach, and so you believed. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may our worship, all of our worship be acceptable to you. Give us clearness of mind this afternoon. Please give me confidence not in my speaking, which is weak, but in the truth of your word and your calling to feed your sheep. Father, may these spoken words today be faithful to the written word and lead us to the living word, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. On August 14th in the year of 1173, a long time ago, a city began construction on a building that would one day become famous for all the wrong reasons. After about five years, they began constructing the second floor of this building, and it was at this point that the building began to sink, and it caused this beautiful tower to lean. This didn't deter the builder, though, who simply began to build the floors at an angle on each floor with one side being higher than the others in the hopes that it would straighten out this tower or overcompensate for it. Every year, the Tower of Peace has shifted a little more, bringing it closer and closer to toppling completely. In 1964, though, the Italian government finally wised up and began to seek help. They asked the world for wisdom in figuring out how to keep this tower from tilting completely. After much research, a great deal, uh, many decades worth of research, they finally came to two conclusions as to why the tower was tumbling. First, it was built on soft marshy ground. This should have been not a surprise to anyone since the word Pisa actually means marshy ground. The second reason the tower was slowly falling was that the marble foundation was only 10 feet thick. It is way too thin for a tower that ultimately became 183 feet tall. Simply put, the foundation was insufficient for the beautiful building that was being built upon it. Fixing the foundation wasn't easy. It required great amounts of dirt to be removed from one side of the building and they began to put great amount of weight on that side of it until eventually it straightened up a little bit while they of course kept it leaning for the sake of tourism. And for the first time ever, it was actually the year 2008, the first time in a 835 year history that the tower did not continue to lean further that year. For now, it's secure, but the architects say that eventually it will become unstable again and continue to lean, and they'll have to find new solutions. So I selected our text this morning for a very specific purpose. It clearly shows the foundation that we desire for Manhattan Presbyterian Church to be built upon. It brings our focus back to why we exist Why we gather together at an awkward time on Sunday afternoons. Why we sing songs of worship to an invisible God. Why we confess our sins and and why we can face each day with hope, even as we dwell in a world that is broken with sin. The why of all this, of course, is the gospel. And the gospel is what I need today. It's what we need daily. It's what the people of Manhattan need, like all of us. Now, it's true that Jesus is both the builder and the foundation of the church. And we have hope today because Jesus still exists today, and he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. But don't simply take my word for it. I want to show you this in Scripture today. When Paul writes this, he's been carried along by the Holy Spirit, and he's writing to the local church in Corinth. In this, he was very clear about what his purpose in writing was. Look at verse 1, and you'll see it. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. Paul needed to remind the church, and Corinth tells us they were a forgetful people. See, the reason that your mother had to tell you as a child that you needed to brush your teeth was because you forgot, right? It didn't take much for them to remind you. It's not like you were rebellious or part of an anti-teeth-brushing organization uh, or anything of that nature. It was just you forgot, And it wasn't like you forgot every detail of brushing your teeth. Uh, As soon as she said that you should go brush your teeth, you certainly remembered what it meant to brush your teeth and probably some ideas to why you should brush your teeth, namely so they don't fall out. But apart from that reminder, you simply forgot. And Paul's reminding the Corinthians of the gospel here. Simply because they forgot how real it was and what it meant for real life. We also are forgetful people when it comes to the gospel. Not a day goes by that I don't need to be reminded, either by myself or someone else, of the gospel of which I have received and in which I believe. And I expect most of you are the same way and when that happens, we go about our life as though God does not exist, as though forgiveness has no value or impact on the way that we actually live our life. Sure, if I asked you about the gospel, you could probably answer my questions, but. Does it drive your life? Does it impact the way that you will respond to your tired, moody child? Will it change the way you interact with your difficult professor, your difficult roommate? Is the gospel the foundation of which your day is built upon? In verse 1, the reminder begins with telling them how humanly speaking they are to believe the gospel. In this case, Paul preached it and they received it. And even now, it is the foundation upon which they stand. There is corruption around them in Corinth. Corinth was not a good city. And he is reminding them that the gospel is an identity that belongs to them. It is who they are. And it's who we are. As verse 2 begins, we see that the gospel is saving us, followed by a conditional statement. Verse 2 reads, and so on. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried. Now, I won't go too deep into it today, but I do want to mention this conditional statement in verse 2 if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. It's not teaching that true Christians are in danger of losing their salvation, rather, it's a, a warning to those whose profession of faith is not genuine to begin with. And in that situation, they will not hold fast to the word. And thus, that kind of belief is in vain. It is something along the lines of mere intellectual knowledge or the gospel is interesting to them, but but really not the foundation of their life. Nothing of great importance to them. And Paul says this to push the people to evaluate their own response to the preaching of the gospel. Is this a, a hobby? Or is this my whole life? Is it so real and so needed That it must be my everything. To that point in verse 3. We see that phrase. For I delivered to you as of first importance. First importance. That's a huge statement. That is certainly fitting. This is the gospel. The gospel is the most important thing. That you need to know and believe. Now I don't mean to lessen. The other things which you need to know, but rather to lift up the importance of the gospel as Paul is doing in this text here. Let me explain it like this. Your effort in school, your effort at work, your effort at home to learn new things and know new things is very, very important. It will help you live out 1 Corinthians 10.31, which tells us that we are to do all things for the glory of God. It will put you in a position to be a witness to the gospel that you would otherwise not have. Today in the world, the church has medical missionaries all over the globe. They didn't get there by neglecting all information except the gospel. No, they worked hard to do well at something that they either were passionate about or they saw as a means to get to where they really wanted to get. In the case of medical missionaries, to be in the lives of unbelievers who are in need of the gospel in countries all around the world. But, like Paul tells us in Corinthians, the gospel is the most important information in the history of the world. It's simple enough that small children can understand it, and mysterious enough that even the greatest thinkers the world has ever seen never can stop wrestling with it. But why? Why is the gospel the most important? Let's consider what Paul has to say about that. Look at verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is important because we are sinners. That's one of those terms that we're so familiar with that sometimes we actually lose a little meaning. We've lost an understanding of what this is talking about. And so when I hear the word sin talked about, if I'm honest, sometimes I tend to think, yes, yes, we're all sinners. We're bad. We get it. But do we? Do we really get it? I mean, I know that I'm declared a sinner, but do we really see sin the way that God sees sin? Do we feel the weight of our sin? Do we know the offense our judgmental thoughts are to God? Do we understand how me-centered our hearts are, constantly justifying selfish actions? Does the reality that we deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on us really, really hit us? Jesus is called the Lamb of God. He is called that because he is the sacrifice for our sins. In the Old Testament, the people of, of God would bring these animals. And these animals, often a lamb, and it would be sacrificed for the sin. And really, we talk about the sacrifice, but the sacrifice was an ugly, disgusting process. Um, a lamb's throat was simply cut. Well, someone held a bowl, and they would catch the blood as the life of the lamb was poured out. It's a disgusting image. Sin is a nasty thing and it demands a terrible payment. And that's the picture that Paul is speaking into here. And that's what Paul is ultimately getting at here. He's saying, Listen, Corinthians, you know this. This is the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. But really, he makes it more corporate than that, doesn't he? He says, Jesus died for our sins, he died for the sins of the church, according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures means that this was God's sovereign plan all along. As we unpack the scriptures, God willing on future Sundays together and smaller settings together and all the time together, really, I think we're going to see this all in more detail. For now, suffice it to say that the Old Testament points forward to Jesus delivering his people from their sin. And so if you're here this afternoon and your faith, your hope is in Jesus Christ, then your sin is forgiven. Because the blood of the Lamb has been poured out for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 gives a little detail of that transaction. It says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin does not simply disappear into nothingness, does it? Jesus took our sin upon Himself. It had to be paid for. Someone's blood had to be poured out. And Jesus takes the sin of his people, your sin, my sin. He takes that terrible thought in your mind, that hatred in your heart, that disbelief, that sexual sin you regret, that little lie you told, every single sin was paid for by the blood of Christ. And what do we get? You and I are the children of God by faith. We receive Christ's righteousness. Our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Although our hearts were stained crimson red by sin, in Jesus they are made white as snow. And what did we do to earn it? Nothing. But how many of us walked around last week excited that our sins were paid for? And that we're counted righteous in Christ? And I don't say that to shame you, I didn't either. And I ask you this because really we need to remind each other of the truth of the gospel because that changes everything. During Jesus' earthly mission, he would heal the broken and they'd be bursting with excitement and Jesus would tell them, don't tell anyone about this. And the people were so excited about the work that Jesus did in their life, they could hardly keep quiet. In fact, most of the time they wouldn't told people anyway they were so excited. And then after his, his death and his resurrection, Jesus gives the great commission, which is basically the opposite command to them, go and tell everyone about this. And that's where we are. We have received grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And, and my prayer for us as a church is that the reality of the gospel would be so real that we simply can't keep it silent. Okay, so the gospel is about the cross. And Jesus died on that cross. And of course, that means he was buried. And quite amazingly, we see that Jesus did not remain dead. No, he was raised on the third day, just as Jesus foretold about himself in Matthew 17, 22 and 23. Speaking here to the disciples, Jesus says, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Well, that's insane, isn't it? It's impossible. Paul is speaking to reasonable people, and reasonable people know that the dead are dead, and the dead simply stay dead. It makes sense then why he immediately lays out this, this whole list of, of witnesses for the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. In verse 5 he says that Jesus appeared to Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic name for the apostle Peter. He appeared to Peter. After that Jesus appeared to the twelve. That's the twelve apostles. After that Jesus appeared to over 5,000 Christians at once. And because Paul knows how crazy this sounds, he points out that most of those people are still alive. He's making this point, go ask them. These people are around, go talk to them, go ask them what they saw. And after that, Jesus appeared to James. See, James was Jesus' half-brother. And one of the amazing things about James is it's Jesus' half-brother. And yet, uh, in, in the Gospel of John, we see that he didn't even believe in Jesus. Not until after the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, everything changed. Then again, Jesus appeared to all the apostles again. And finally, Paul makes it personal. In verses 8 through 11, we read this. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then I was I or they, we preach and so you believe. From the perspective of the church, Paul was a terrible man. He hated Christians and everyone in the region knew that. He was going around persecuting and killing and, and really out to get the church. Paul had plans to destroy the church and then God changed him. You can tell he doesn't love the fact that his past was so antagonistic against the church in this. Paul feels this unworthiness from that and yet those feelings of unworthiness lead to this beautiful statement in verse 10. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. We begin to see that Paul is not just reminding them of the grace that they have received in the gospel. He's reminding himself of the grace that he has received in the gospel. What he means is, is this. If God had left me to myself, I would still hate the church. I would be an enemy of God. I would still be in my sin and guilty. But by the grace of God, Paul is who he is. He is a sinner who has been redeemed by God. And if your faith this afternoon is in Jesus Christ alone, then by the grace of God, you are his children. You are a child of God. Because of the gospel, we can go to God and we can ask in this almost way, you forgive me? You're not going to make me do anything to earn this, God? You're not going to punish me. You're not going to yell at me. You're not going to tell everyone my sin. God, is your wrath really not going to be poured out of me? And all over the scriptures, we hear God's answer. No, I just forgive you. That's grace. That's mercy, and that's how God has loved his people. Sinners redeemed is the foundation of the church. It's what we're seeing. Paul then adds in verse 10 that the grace of God given to him was not in vain. He says that he has worked harder than any of the other apostles. And he's not saying that he's somehow trying to pay God back. He's not saying that his work has has earned him any sense of righteousness. He's simply saying that because of his previous life, his being a Pharisee of some great reputation, that he now faces greater persecution than the other apostles. The heart of Paul's statement then is seen in verse 11. Look at it with me. Whether then it is I or they... We preach, and so you believed. You heard the gospel because it was proclaimed. That's how each of us have come to believe the gospel. We may have heard it in the mouths of preachers, or read it proclaimed in written word. We may have seen and heard it proclaimed in our parents, or the lives of other believers, or various other ways that it might be proclaimed to us. What I mean is that the word is preached, and so you have believed. What we see here is that God saves sinners. And he does so through the proclamation, the preaching of the gospel. So let me bring this to a close with two statements for you. The first one's this. You need the gospel. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You need it again and again and again. And I'm not saying that your sins haven't been forgiven. Or that you need it again because somehow you've lost it. I'm saying you need to be reminded of what it means that your sins are forgiven. It means you don't have to earn God's love with perfection. You already have His love. It means your parenting failures are forgiven on the cross. It means you're looking for love and acceptance from a man or a woman is washed by the blood of Jesus. It means your selfish heart, though ever present in in this life, is being made more like Christ. It means... You are a child of God. God loves you and cares for you, not because you are his creation, but because you are his child, and he has made you his child. Know that. Build your life on the foundation of the gospel. The second statement is this. You are a witness to the world of the mercies of God. Every day as you serve your family, And as you interact with new friends and old friends, as you focus at work, and as you converse with people at school, you are being a witness to the grace that you have received. Here's what that looks like. Because God has been patient with you, you can be patient with others. Because God has forgiven you, you can forgive others. Because God has loved you despite of your self-centered heart, you can love others despite their self-centered hearts. Because God has been gracious to you who are so undeserving of that, you may be gracious to those who are so undeserving of grace themselves. Because God has used others to proclaim the gospel to you, you can be used of God to proclaim the gospel to others. So let me bring it to a close with why the gospel is so important to us as a church who is seeking to make the grace of God known in Manhattan. Fairly often, I get to ride bicycles with my children in the morning, and we ride to their school and drop them off, and the route that we take goes right through the middle of Sunset Cemetery, and as we pass by, we ride right through these gravestones, and as we pass by them, I I like to read them, and on them are, are the names of these people, first names and last names, and the years that they were born and the years that they died, and I'm always intrigued by these. I I look at these and they represent these people with real lives and and I wonder what must their life have been like. They lived here in the same town that, that we live. And many worked for, attended the university just down the street from here. They worked for businesses in towns. They fell in love here. They married here. They had children and they raised their families here. And I think about how frustrated they must have been some days. Uh, about issues that they thought were important. And I think of that because that's my experience someday. Uh, How they had plans to do big things and accomplish great things in their life. And they were like you and me, just focused on this life, taking it one day at a time. And I admit, it's a strange thing to watch Beckham and Sadie Piper ride past these gravestones with these, these bright smiles on their faces and laughing and treating it like a park almost, Well, six feet below these monuments are dead people who lived real lives. It makes me sad some days to think that that they lived here, like I said, in the same city that we live. But it's also a great reminder of the importance of the gospel being the foundation of which we build our lives on. It reminds me that it is through the gospel that God builds his church, and that it is through the church that God proclaims his gospel to the world. And this is done as we, like farmers, faithfully plant the word of God, scattering it wherever we go. And as I look to those gravestones, I'm made aware that that it is too late for them. They either died in faith and are with their Savior, or they died in their sin and they have no Savior. But that's not where you are. It's not where I am. Not yet. And while you still have breath, God has purpose for you. This doesn't mean that you should abandon all your plans for life and and just walk around preaching the gospel, and believe me, that concept has come to my mind before when you start to think about these eternal things, but but the reality is is that God has given you talents and abilities. He's given you careers and various interests, and some of your interests are really, really weird, but (laughs) God has given you this, And, and that gives you these interactions with people and relations with people. So don't just be where God has you right now. Live where God has you right now. Live as one who remembers the gospel you received and knows it to be of first importance. Like I said before, the gospel is what we want to be about as a church We want to be about a people who know the holiness of God, who know the depravity of our own sin, who know the grace of God we have received through the gospel. And that means we want to be a people who love God and who love people. And so our prayer is this, that it would be true that we love God's word. And that it would be true that we are nourished by our participation in the Lord's Supper. And may this prove true in the way that we bring everything to God in prayer. In the way that we love each other as a covenant community. And how we participate in worship together with our minds and our hearts fully engaged. Because really God is awesome. He is. May we be eagerly involved in making disciples. In the way that we're engaging community here. That we'd be serving our community as we serve alongside each other and serve alongside those who are already doing gospel ministry in this city. in the way that we view every aspect of life through the lens of scripture, encouraging each other in every way. We are in this work together. One body with many parts working towards one goal. May our lives be built upon the only solid foundation, and that is Jesus Christ as he redeems us through the gospel. Let us pray. God, we cannot build a church, we cannot soften the hearts of the lost, we can't focus the hearts of your people towards gospel ministry, but you can. You can open the eyes of the blind, you can cause the lame to walk, you can change our priorities, and you, you can build your church. We ask simply that we might be near and watch you work, so that we can see your mighty hands of redemption as they heal the hearts of men and women in the place that you have them. Protect us and sanctify us, making each of us more like you as we grow to better understand this gospel. You have brought us to believe through faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.